Well, thank you, Quentin, for uh, very elegantly, as usual, setting the stage and uh, highlighting uh, the patients, uh, where they are and how to identify them. And the crucial thing, obviously, from my perspective also as a physician, is if you identify a patient, you've got to act on it. If you see something, you've got to do something. And I think in the second part of the symposium, and thank you again, all of you, for being here tonight and sharing this with us, the time. I'm going to be diving into the management of some patients or giving you my thoughts as a hepatologist on what we can do and achieve for these patients. Um, reflecting quickly, I think we're, we've gotten used to uh, risk stratify our population based on some of the tests that Quentin highlighted here. Um, I think there is a concept that we want to prevent progression uh, to advanced disease stages, and that's very valuable. I mean, if we're moving to the drug development arena, and Stephen Harrison is going to detail that later, we're aiming at reversion, but the prevention of progression is obviously something we're, we're tackling today in clinics, and that's very valuable for the patient. Now, in the earlier disease stages, the F0, F1, F2, there is a, a clear need to manage comorbidities more stringently. Even so, in the advanced disease stage patients, and the recent NASH CRN paper uh, published in the New England Journal showed you that you have an incident of extrahepatic comorbidities, including arterial hypertension or decline of renal function. So uh, we won't stop managing those comorbidities. And uh, the important thing is this is something we can do today for these patients. And, and of course, we're looking out for future pharmacological treatments, and in the end-stage patients, we're doing uh, cirrhosis workup, screening for complications, screening for portal hypertension to affect the outcome in patients overall. Why is that? Well, overall, and this is data that's uh, taken from the Swedish registries, which have a solid database linked to outcome data. Um, patients with NAFLD have an overall lower life expectancy compared to the general population. And you can see that in both females and males. And it's that gray area that dips below the straight line, and in particular the middle-aged patients that do lose live years if they're affected by NAFLD, and it's the life expectancy of overall 2.8 years that are being lost in these patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I think this is a strong argument to say we need to identify these patients and try to optimize their management to avoid that loss in life. Um, this is all the data published by Apollo Angulo. It's a retrospective analysis, and it shows you that the predominant cause of death in those patient populations is related to cardiovascular disease, so that's a critical driver of life lost. Um, overall in patients, and non-hepatic cancers actually came up as a signal here. So uh, since then, there's more data being generated on that, uh, and that reflects that we're talking, to, we're talking about a population that has cardiovascular risk factors and uh, risk of developing cancer. And this is actually something we, we, we recapitulated in a German population. Um, this is data that's uh, taken from a German primary care physician, uh, big database, 7 million people being insured in the general health care system in Germany. And uh, we were able to pull patients based on, NC, uh, on ICD-10 coding, okay? Um, so looking at patients coded with NAFLD versus no NAFLD, and this is the blue line coded with NAFLD versus no NAFLD, the red line. And matching them at baseline for age, metabolic risk factors, and, and uh, treating physicians, you can see that the scissor here goes a little bit apart and that the patients with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease have a higher incidence. So this is incident cardiovascular disease on the left side, but also incident cancer on the right-hand side. And this is not an all or nothing, but it's an incremental gain of morbidity that NAFLD adds to the picture here. And that's important uh, when we're talking about optimal management. We want to take off that gain in incident comorbidities again, uh, if possible. So what else do we know? We, we are focusing on fibrosis stage because there's an incremental jump in mortality uh, according to fibrosis stages. And you see F4 
uh, stage here with the highest mortality. And that's incremental, if, even if you look in the cirrhotic patient population, talking about the child pew A, uh, five points versus six points, you can see that the overall mortality here is really shifting in that picture. So what do, what do we do? How do we identify these patients? And I think Quentin Anstey walked us through this nicely. This is, again, the easel recommendation that identifies a low-risk population with the uh, high negative predictive value. Well, it, it always depends on the context of use, and I think he's also elegantly shown that. To get everybody pulled together, we're talking about NAFLD being an inflammatory systematic disease. We need multiple stakeholders at the table. And this is a consensus statement where we try to define uh, models of care, who should be uh, treating patients, uh, what should be done, uh, where should they be treated, and I think um, looking at different healthcare systems, this is going to be not a unique answer. Uh, I can say that in Germany we're setting up this a little different uh, based on the available resources and the partners we have than in other countries, but I think it's important we start to reflect about that to actually optimize the management. So we need multiple stakeholders bringing to them together to optimally managing patients with uh, that multi-system disease, NAFLD. And we can be successful. So this is a study uh, we've did in, in Mainz. It's a single-arm study, so uh, um, that's why uh, I'm very passionate about it. And it's a short, uh, individualized, web-based training. So we took patients with histologically confirmed NAFLD and subjected them to individual training through the web and did a short intervention, eight weeks. And if you look into the graphs, I have the graph uh, inflammation. The ALT um, moves down over that um, period. So we trained them for eight weeks and then we followed them up until 20 weeks. ALT moves pretty rapidly. We did a, uh, we did a direct fibrosis marker, the Pro-C3, and that changed um, somewhat delayed. And I, that always reminds me of the pathophysiology of the disease. So you get a decrease in inflammation and there's a little delayed uh, turning off of fibrogenesis, and I think this was a nice study to kind of support that concept that we can do something even outside of medical uh, therapy for our patients here by trying to uh, have them exercise or increase exercise and take them by the hand and have them exercise more. Uh, the other concept we're currently employing in clinical uh, practice is obviously diet uh, recommendations, and there's a number of studies being done um, with regards to dietary intervention. This is one from Israel that I enjoyed. This is uh, evidence supporting that the Mediterranean diet combined with a low-carb diet uh, was more efficient in reducing the intrahepatic liver fat content uh, that's measured by MRI, and you're going to see that uh, in the green cartoon here versus, for example, a low-fat diet, okay? So if it comes to diet, I think the most critical aspect is, of course, that the patient can adhere to it and will follow through. If you're talking about what should be done, low-fat, Mediterranean, I think this is good evidence that you can move intrahepatic fat content if you do this for 18 months. So management is not only liver disease, but we're having uh, these multi-morbid patients. And uh, as a hepatologist, we have to start thinking about these other comorbidities that impair quality of life, that impair cardiovascular outcomes, managing optimal management of the type 2 diabetes, screening for depression, managing the dyslipidemia uh, in these patients, because all these factors impact outcome uh, in, in, in the long run. And this is some data showing you the incremental prevalence of comorbidities in patients uh, with NAFLD with regards to cardiovascular. And I think chronic kidney disease is something that we haven't uh, focused on too much. Uh, there's a lot of talk about cancer and cardiovascular disease. But also, um, I've mentioned the NASH-CRN study in the New England Journal paper that uh, actually showed that, particularly in the advanced disease stages, we have a decline in, in, in renal function in our patients. And that's, of course, critically linked to um, overall mortality. 
So are hepatologists good at screening for comorbidities? And this is actually a study that was led by uh, Vlad Ratsiu. Uh, and he brought back uh, together a, a group of experts and queried them and asked about, you know, how do you do it in your practice? How do you screen uh, for comorbidities? And this is the answer. You can see that most hepatologists he asked do consider diabetes and, and arterial hypertension as a comorbidity they screen for. But if it comes to depression or sleep apnea or even kidney disease, uh, less than half of the uh, colleagues actually look, look for that. And I think if we really want to make an impact for our patients and improve overall uh, survival, I think it will be important that even as hepatologists, we start to think about these comorbidities in our patients and have either a partner that supports us and that comes back to the multimodal management and the, and the comprehensive models of care, or we start doing very simple tests ourselves and, 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 and act on them to uh, improve um, outcome. And uh, this is, again, uh, some data from our own uh, single-center cohort here, 221 patients with uh, liver histology. And we use the Framingham Risk Score as a tool to predict the 10-year CBD risk in these patients. And uh, similar as in other studies in the literature, we're seeing it's a significant uh, fibrosis population, the F2 and higher, or the ones with active NASH, NAS4, and more, and significant fibrosis, where you see the highest percentage of 10-year risk, which goes up to 16% in these patients. So I think it's relevant uh, that we start to think about it. Let me revisit the case that Professor Anstey presented here, and maybe in the round table we have more time to discuss some of the concrete findings. I calculated the Framingham risk score for this patient, and turning out it's not only a patient with highly active uh, pre-serotic NASH, it also has uh, this lady, a relevant Framingham risk score, taking uh, the cholesterol levels and the absence of baseline cardiovascular disease into account. So again, it highlights that this is important for our patients. Where do we go in the field? I think there's a lot of data being generated in current phase three trials. We're seeing a lot of compendium diagnostics, and there's been great work with regards to refining some of those biomarkers, the FAST score, using both lipids, blood-based biomarkers, and imaging biomarkers to identify at-risk NASH. But there's also MRE-based technologies, and they have actually um, led to an uh, increase in the AUC to identify these at-risk patients. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where in the future we're going to go here. For sure, with all these large phase three studies being run, we're going to have much more data being generated. And I'm really looking forward to refine the NITs based on these data sets. So pharmacological treatment, that almost brings me to the end of my talk and will open up the sphere for Stephen Harrison, who will go into the last section of this talk. Currently, there's no approved pharmacological therapy. I have to say, um, as a German physician or as a German hepatologist, I don't use pioglitazone or vitamin E in my patients. It, there is a mention in some of the guidelines, but I think we're at a point where we really need to um, move it to the next level, and uh, we're waiting for therapies that are um, hopefully emerging soon. And if we're talking about end-stage liver disease, you know, the end of the spectrum, the HVPG I want to mention briefly here, or the concept of clinical significant portal hypertension is the one that drives outcome in these patients. And here we're really talking about the, uh, the liver physician that has to manage these patients to prevent mortality. Every increase in portal venous pressure by one millimeter of mercury is associated with an increase in, in, in risk. And um, the data I'm showing you here um, separates the below and the above 10 a millimeter mercury, which is considered clinical significant portal hypertension. You see how the event-free survival, even in a short time frame of 48 months, is different in these cohorts. And the Bovino criteria is something we have today in clinical practice to risk stratify and manage these patients, looking at both 
uh, transit elastography, but also platelets and in uh, risk assessing patients with end-stage liver disease. And of course, if we are able to revert cirrhosis, and this is data that's been generated within clinical trials with paired biopsies, the number of liver radiated events is significantly decreased. So talking about management and treatment goals, I think there is a clear uh, reasoning for aiming for reversion of even cirrhosis in our patients. That leaves me to conclude. I think the treatment goal depends very much on the disease stage where we have good tools to stage our patients today. Um, there's an increased mortality and morbidity in patients uh, irrespective of the fibrosis stages, but it increases uh, significantly with higher fibrosis stages. I think depression, obstructive sleep apnea, and, and chronic kidney disease are frequently overlooked by hepatologists, and I have to uh, you know, address myself here too. I think this is something where we have to aggressively start thinking about the management. Today, we have really lifestyle measures. Um, not a lot of pharmacological uh, or none uh, are approved in that indication and the novel biomarkers I discussed. So I think with that, um, I'm going to hand it over to you, Stephen, and we'll be taking questions at the end.